Lucas on Life. Hello, I'm Jeff Lucas. This is Lucas on Life. And during this time when we've been experiencing various degrees of lockdown and social distancing, we've been missing family and friends. This week here on Premier Christian Radio, Lucas on Life, it's Lucas on Real Friendship. It's a phrase, isn't it? Phone a friend. Bogner Regis, I know. Despite its regal title, it's never going to make the top exotic locations in the world list. Any listeners who are residents there or perhaps love the place, please forgive me, but here's the truth. Glorious white sand is in rather short supply in Bognor. The beach instead is a mass of unyielding pebbles. Barefoot bathers wince as they pick their way across those stones. There's a broken pier shattered by a series of devastating storms and fires, once the home of a fabulous 1,400-seat theatre, long gone now, the pier is now a sad, short iron stump jutting out into the grey sea, the home of a tired amusement arcade with intermittent flashing neon lights and the smell of dampened seaweed heavy in the air. But Bogner, it holds a special place in my heart. It was there that my brand new bride and I went to church the Sunday morning after our Saturday wedding. Discovering that we were newlyweds, the minister asked me to give a word of testimony about my most recent blessings. This being the morning after our wedding night, I blushed crimson red. Awkward. But as a young lad, I spent some marvellous summers messing around on Bogner's hardcore beach. Those were days when a 12-year-old was allowed to travel alone on a bus. My grandparents lived just a few miles from the coast, and I had made friends with Ian, whose family made their home in Bogner. Every summer, I would board the bus, just a few shillings, some would remember those, in my pocket for the fare, and make my way to Ian's home, just a hundred metres or so from the promenade. I was always given a warm welcome, even though I'd not seen my friend for a whole year. We spent long, wonderful days, tanned deep brown by the salty sun, our tired limbs restored by delicious suppers served by Ian's mum at the end of the afternoon. For a London boy, those days by the sea were just heavenly. Until it happened. It was the beginning of another long, lazy summer, Excited and eager to begin another few weeks of fun, I leapt off the bus and ran towards the street where Ian lived. I turned the corner and my dream summer turned to winter in an instant. Ian's house had disappeared, vanished into thin air, gone. How could this be? How could someone steal a house? Actually, the entire street had been swept away, all houses demolished, to make room for a new car park. As for Ian and his family, I had no idea where they had gone, no way to make contact. That was it. I never saw my friend Ian again. Fifty years later, today, I thought about Ian and my soul sank because I'd love to know what happened to him, how life turned out, how delightful it would be to meet up, to remember those carefree days that we shared in Bogner Regis. And that got me thinking, which can be dangerous. I pondered friendships that I've enjoyed through the years and lamented the fact that some that I thought would always be there 
are now nowhere to be seen. Some close ties came undone due to conflict and misunderstanding. The flame of friendship faded with others because our bond couldn't stretch the geographical distance between us. And then function catalyzes friendship. When a season of working together ends, the friendship we made in that shared space sometimes ends too. I just thought that our friendship ties would endure once our season of working together was over. Perhaps I was unrealistic and should have known that relationships that are seasonal are no less meaningful. Sometimes there's a sudden ending. Jesus knew that pain of disappearing friendship. Mark's gospel gives a stark indictment about his band of brothers. Then everyone deserted him and fled. They vanished into thin air, gone. I've had a few of those. And I'm sure that I've been less than a perfect friend. There were times when crisis hit others and I was not there for them. Other situations when I spoke words that I regret and wish I could take back. As a friend, mine is a far from perfect record. But today let's know this. Friends make us better. We drink deep from joy as well when laughter is shared. A fabulous experience is surely so much better for most of us when we can turn to a friend and say, isn't this great? But this much is true. Friends tell us what we don't know. And if their friendship is deep, authentic, real, then perhaps at times they'll tell us what we really don't want to know. They shape us even as they disappoint because there's no perfect fit in friendship and to think otherwise is naive. Friendship comforts, but it also confronts our selfishness too. And friendship calls us to faithfulness, to hang in there and stick close, whether we feel like it or not. We need to love our friends for who they are and not spend our days just wishing that they'd be different. So today, maybe phone or email a friend because a true friend is a treasure and loneliness is literally punishing. Ironically, it took social distancing to teach us the value of togetherness. And speaking of phone calls, there is just one that I'd especially welcome. Ian, if by some small chance you're listening to this, do me a big favour. Go ahead. Give me a call. Hi, I'm Sam Hales. If you're enjoying Lucas on Life, you'll love the Profile Podcast. Every week, we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith, and testimony. Here's Justin Welby. Part of my daily prayer discipline is praying in tongues every day, and not as a sort of occasional thing, but as just part of daily prayer. Listen to the full interview with Justin Welby now on The Profile Podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you get your podcast from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. It was a dark day in every sense. The hospital staff had thoughtfully dimmed the lights of the small private ward where my father lay dying. The fluorescent glare was banished, replaced by a softer, warmer lamp, a light to die in. I had rushed into the hospital, summoned by the stark words that say so much. You'd better come right away. My mother sat by my dad's side, dabbing her eyes, holding his hand, whispering reassurances. This was the scene that I'd imagined for months during long nights where sleep eluded me. It was not my father's death that I feared. I knew that he'd made his peace with God. After years of silent anger against heaven, the result of a lost youth spent in Italian and German prisoner of war camps, and the sights and sounds that had been his daily existence through those long years, he had come to terms with the news that there was a God who cared for him. 
During a long, hot summer in America, Dad had finally invited Jesus to take charge of his life. That evening, he came with me on a preaching engagement in Central Oregon. I remember the joy of pointing up into the balcony and announcing to the congregation, Look up there. That's my dad. He became a Christian today. They clapped and cheered and stamped their feet, and he stood up and waved like a member of the royal family. It was a happy day. And then a stroke had hijacked his brain and robbed him of the ability to speak. He'd become a silent prisoner of his own body, fully coherent and intelligent, but sentenced to the moment-by-moment frustration of being utterly unable to communicate except by grunts and hand signals. It was a cruel fate for a man whose favourite thing in life was conversation. But like the prison sentence of his youth, he bore the solitary confinement with brave dignity. The final blow came when they told us that he was dying of emphysema, where fluid gradually fills the lungs. It was this that had robbed me of my sleep. I begged God to allow my father to die in peace. This man had suffered two long prison terms and to die a painful death was an agony too great to contemplate. Dad was in a morphine-induced coma and I knew the moment that I saw him that it would not be long now. The nurses, so pressurised and busy. Back then they were the NHS heroes that we'd been celebrating and applauding recently. They were so consistently caring and kind. They did their best to make him comfortable. My mother went out for a well-earned few minutes of fresh air and I sat quietly with my father's hand in mine. And then I remembered one very special evening a couple of years earlier. Something remarkable had happened when I was staying at my parents' home for the night. I was tucked up in bed, it was past 11, when there was a knock at the bedroom door. The incomprehensible murmuring outside the door told me it was Dad. Even though the stroke had robbed him of his speech, he never stopped trying. I invited him to come on in, but wondered what could he possibly want? It was late in the evening and we couldn't have any kind of conversation. So what was bringing him into my room now? I will never forget the moment when dad came to the side of my bed, knelt down and then slowly and carefully took the blankets and the sheets and he tucked me in, just like he had when I was tiny. He brushed a stray hair away from my forehead, kissed me on the cheek and was gone. He couldn't speak a sentence, but he dramatically expressed his loving care for me that night. I remember lying there for a long time, a man with almost grown children of my own, feeling warm, safe and loved. In our families, in our friendships, we need to say I love you more. Back in that hospital room, conscious now that my dad was struggling just hours from death, I felt that it was time to return the compliment. I will never know if he understood, but I whispered in his ear, Dad, it's Jeff. I love you so much. Soon you're going to be with Jesus, Dad. It may feel really bad now, but you're safe. So, Dad, I'm going to tuck you in. I took the hospital blanket and the crisp white sheet and tucked it into the underside of the mattress. I hope my dad knew. A couple of hours later, it was time for him to leave. My dad was always a bit of a joker. He loved to laugh and keep us guessing, even in death. The nurse, searching for a pulse, could find none. He's gone, she declared, solemnly but warmly. No, he's not. He's back. No, he's gone. No, he's back. She waited for a minute or two, unwilling to take us on the emotional roller coaster any longer. Finally, she spoke again. 
Yes, he has gone now. And this time he had. Mum and I just both burst into tears and as I leaned over to kiss my dad's still warm forehead, the telephone at his bedside rang at that moment. Who could it be? The nurse answered the phone and announced that it was someone wanting to speak to me. A Dr Chris Edwardson from America was on the line. Chris and Jeannie Edwardson are our closest friends. Our families have holidayed together for years. Chris is my closest confidant. I took the phone. Jeff, it's Chris. Look, I'm in Canada and I'm driving right now, but God spoke to me and told me that I needed to pull over and phone you, track you down, because you needed me to call right now. What's going on? I told my friend that Dad had died less than 30 seconds earlier and that I was right beside him now. That's why the Lord asked me to call you, Jeff. I'm your friend and I love you. Your dad is with Jesus now. I'm praying for you and Jeannie and I will be over there to be with you in the next few days. I put the phone down and marveled. There was I at one of the most poignant moments of my life. Many times I'd quiz Chris about my dad's likely death with the challenge of the emphysema. And now, as a gift of grace from God, he had called, he had phoned from the other side of the world at the precise moment that I needed him. I had tucked my dad in, and now a similar warmth and security came as I realised the blessing of genuine, real friendship. God is kind, and he often shows that to us through a friend. Hi, I'm Sam Hales. If you're enjoying Lucas on Life, you'll love the Profile podcast. Every week, we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith, and testimony. Here's Joyce Mayer. Anything that we give up for God, He gives it back to us multiplied so many, many times over. I encourage anybody to make whatever sacrifices they need to to be in the perfect will of God because there's no better place to be. Listen to the full interview with Joyce Mayer now on The Profile Podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you get your podcasts from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. We're talking about real friendship. Real friends will tell us the truth. As a singer, she was a phenomenal success, packing out New York's prestigious Carnegie Hall. A chart topper as the best-selling artist for her recording company, she worked very hard for her success, hiring a renowned vocal coach to help hone her technique. Her friends cheered her on, celebrating her unique gift. There was just one problem. She couldn't sing. The subject of a recent movie starring Meryl Streep and Hugh Grant, Florence Foster Jenkins has become renowned for being the world's worst opera singer. According to one rather cutting historian, no one before or since has succeeded in liberating themselves quite so completely from the shackles of musical notation. Ouch. Apparently oblivious to the fact that her audience actually gathered to quietly mock her, she was consistently flat, sometimes off-key by as much as a semitone. With her poor diction, she massacred foreign language lyrics, but undeterred, she kept on singing while her fans sniggered behind their hands. Hers is a tragic, pathetic story made possible because nobody loved her enough to tell her the truth. Something similar happens in churches where a genuine commitment to encouragement has distilled into hollow flattery, where we so want to cheer people on that we end up barking them up the wrong tree, nudging them to do what God has not called them or equipped them to do. 
someone preaches a fairly mediocre sermon and is promptly told that it was brilliant. Where the gifts of the Spirit are operated, a seriously dodgy prophecy is shared on a Sunday morning. The congregation-wide mass-clenching of buttocks means that everyone knows that the God of the universe most likely has not spoken. But for fear of crushing the would-be prophet, or worse still, offending him or her, everyone stays tight-lipped. The emperor's clothes remain unruffled. There's a greater danger of this when any kind of constructive criticism or feedback is viewed as negative or even divisive. Nervous of being tagged as a dissenter, people nod their heads and blindly affirm. Not only does this dilute the possibility of quality control, but it devalues the currency of genuine encouragement. When people are always told that what they do is awesome, but they are anything but, Nobody really believes it when real gifting is affirmed. One day, the hapless Florence found out the truth. Following a Carnegie Hall event, the New York Sun newspaper critic was scathing, declaring that Florence could sing everything except notes. Florence was devastated, suffered a heart attack five days later, and died within a month. Who knows? Perhaps if someone had loved her enough to tell her the truth, she might have lived a little longer and a lot happier too. As we think about real friendship, let's remember the words of the Bible. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, says the wise man in Proverbs. So if you really love someone and you've earned the right to say what might be uncomfortable to hear, but is life-giving in the long term, then for God's sake and for theirs, speak tenderly, but speak up. And if you find yourself on the receiving end of and if you find yourself on the receiving end of advice you don't want to hear, remember that wounds hurt even when they're inflicted by the faithful, but when the initial sting subsides, you'll be glad that your friend loved you enough to tell you the truth. Lucas on life. 